Is Mare a person's name? Yes, it's M-A-R-E. I thought it was like a, a symbolism of like, no. this is a, a horse. No. Kate Winslet plays Mare of the human. East Town. Ah. Yeah. Fascinating. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. And I'm Amanda Luberto. In today's movie swap, we're talking about a couple of adaptations. I watched August Osage County for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched The Natural. A couple of different kinds of adaptations. Yeah. One is a play, one is a book, one has some different kind of lore. Another one uh, is August Osage County and has some Oscar lore. Uh <laughs> That sounded meaner than I meant it to, but hey, we're going to talk about it anyway. But before we do that, how are you doing? What have you been watching, my friend? Things are good. Just celebrated the Mains double like concert show a few weeks ago. Had friends go to their first main show. Um, it was just it was a good time all around. But watching a lot of TV because that's what I do at the beginning of the year when I feel like I'm not cramming movies into my list. Um, as I like escape to TV land a little bit, but been also making sure I get in a few good movies here and there. But been one that I didn't get to mention last time, but now it will feel way outdated. But I did finish The Curse, loved it. The one that will probably still be relevant is that I've been watching True Detective Night Country. It's really good. I'm I'm super in. I rewatched the first season of True Detective just to get in the zone. It is crazy how much that season of television impacted how movies look now. I've never seen much of True Detective. I think I watched like the first three episodes of the Mahershala season and never picked it up. But um, how much did Night Country impact Jodie Foster getting nominated for Nyad? Um, I don't think a lot. I want to know <laughs> what's going on with Nyad and why both of them are just, they're everywhere. I need to watch Nyad still before I pass judgment, uh, but I won't freak out online like many people have no. yet. I got no place for that. Um, I, I did watch the Marvels. Yeah. <laughs> Thought it was like just fine. It was definitely better than I had anticipated, but I'm I'm still real bitter about everything they did to Captain Marvel, but there were some cool fight scenes. I liked when the... The three women were like changing positions. It reminded me of the uh, first Avengers when uh, Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man are all fighting Loki in the forest. And it's like that three against one sitch. Mm -hmm. um, and then I finally watched Doctor Strangelove, the oh. uh, 1964 Stanley Kubrick satire. Um, I had to watch it twice because I don't think I understood the first time what the tone of the movie was supposed to be and then I was like really thrown off and then when I rewatched it I was like oh I understand what's going on now and yeah it was great I mean what a shock <laughs> <laughs> wait is, I thought you had seen that for some reason is that the last Kubrick movie you have needed to watch well I had been missing Strangelove Spartacus and Lolita so mm. now I just have those other two Spartacus is almost never streaming, so I have to go search for it somewhere. Does it make it to the Kubrickian top five for you? Um, It does not, but it's really good. And I can tell like what other movies ha are trying to like rip 
off of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We love a core text. Yeah, exactly. Um, How are you? What have you been up to? Uh, I'm good. Just enjoying this slow part of the schedule so far before things start to ramp up at work. But um, You say that, but you were also in Chicago for like 20 hours. I was. I did get to see our good friend Dominic. We ate Italian beefs. Um, it was delicious. Oh, yeah. Uh, shout out to Dom. Anyway, uh, been good. Work's been chilling slow. And so I've just been watching a lot of movies. Um, usually I do the same where uh, I will catch up on like a TV show. Like in years past, I've watched Station Eleven or kind of binge succession um during january but uh instead been watching movies uh one of which i watched blade the 1998 wesley snipes star vehicle blade rules yeah i got to see it on the big screen too at the beverly um which was really sweet uh so it was really loud they they turned that that volume up uh super high and uh really had a special effect at the rave i don't know if anybody has looked more like they had jumped out of a comic book than Wesley Snipes in that movie, just the way he's like angled. Um, and he kind of gives like the action star two words at a time performance, which I thought was fun. I'm so jealous that you got to see it on a big screen. Yeah, it was super fun. And it's like such a 90s ass movie with like terrible CGI that actually isn't that bad. Um, mm-hmm. So I had a good time with it. I also recently watched At Long Last Love, which is a Peter Bogdanovich film, a musical starring Sybil Shepard, Madeline Kahn, Burt Reynolds, um, and considered one of the worst movies of all time originally. But there's been like, there's a lot of lore about that in terms of people were kind of up against Bogdanovich at that time, thought he was too successful too early. There was a troubled production. He wanted them to sing live which he had never directed a musical and uh, Burt Reynolds can't sing, but it's charming enough. And actually I thought it was hilarious. It's kind of in the style of the thirties, forties screwball. Um, So if you don't take it too seriously, it's a great time to hang out with Madeline Kahn, uh, which I would love to do in a similar vein in a movie I thought was going to be the worst of all time and was not, and was a musical. uh, I watched Wonka, which was your 2023 surprise of the year. Yeah. And it wasn't terrible. It was actually pretty charming. I did get teary-eyed at the end. And uh, Timothy Chalamet, what a star. That was basically my whole review as well, where it was just like, this wasn't nearly as bad as I was anticipating. Even Bordered On kind of liked it. <laughs> and it, it furthered my theory that the 2023 stupid shit was actually pretty good. As yeah, a whole. exactly. Um, so, you know, I got to watch the Paddington movies now um, to kind of get tapped into that whole universe. Same. Never seen them. But, uh, you know, in a way, Wonka was an adaptation of, oh, I guess it was an adaptation of Ronald Dahl novels, books, stories. I don't really know. Well, anyway, we're talking about adaptations. That was a bad transition. (laughs) We're going to talk about a couple of good movies. Um, Why don't you talk about why we decided to watch these films? I think both of these movies have some of our best actors across the board. It's always interesting. We talk a lot about it, like how someone made a book into a movie or a play slash musical into a movie and like what the differences are as far as what you can do on stage or in a book compared to what you can do on screen and how certain actors are better fit for certain types of performances. And uh, so I think we wanted to do adaptations just to sort of dive into that idea. And what a fun swap that, you know, a movie that uh, lots of good, like, capital A acting, I feel like, happened in both of these films. Um, I enjoyed the fact that these two are from different source materials. Mm-hmm. And so we can kind of talk about how that went about um, in the film production process. But with that 
let's just flip a coin, pick a side, and get to talk about these movies. Um, what are you calling? I'm going to go Heads. I believe that makes it two for two. It was Heads. So which film are we talking about first? Um, let's do August Osage County. Sweet. Let's do it. All right, Zach. Welcome to the most nightmarish breakfast table you've ever been to. Tell us what happened in August Osage County. August Osage County, a 2013 adaptation directed by John Wells, written by Tracy Letts, adapted from Letts' 2007 play. The movie opens in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, as Beverly Weston, played by Sam Shepard, is hiring Joanna, played by Misty Upham, uh, as a housekeeper to help take care of himself and his wife, Violet, who is played by Meryl Streep. Beverly reveals that he is an alcoholic and Violet has mouth cancer and is addicted to pills. They're just a real bang up couple. After this, Beverly disappears, so Violet calls her family for support. Soon the gang arrives. There is Barbara, who is her oldest and is played by Julia Roberts. She lives in Colorado along with her kind of estranged husband, played by Ewan McGregor, whose name is Bill, and their daughter, Jean, who is played by Abigail Breslin. There's also Ivy, played by Julianne Nicholson, who is the middle daughter and stayed in Oklahoma with Violet and Beverly. And lastly, there is the youngest daughter named Karen, who is played by Juliette Lewis and lives an eclectic life in Florida. And she brings her boyfriend, Steve, who is played by Dermot Mulroney. Uh, Finally, Violet's sister, Maddie Faye, played by Margot Martindale, arrives uh, with her husband, Charles, who is played by Chris Cooper. Later, their goofy son, Little Charles, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, arrives late. In fact, he misses the funeral because after a few days of them all being together, they learn that Beverly has drowned on the lake and is probably committed suicide. With all those characters set, the family starts to catch up. Tensions rise. There's a lot of different discussions, arguments almost coming together, but mostly arguments. It comes to head at a breakfast table in which Violet decides to dig into every single person under the guise of quote-unquote truth-telling. Uh, this sets Barbara off and springs her to uh, kind of attack Violet and also confiscate all of Violet's pills. Uh, also later revealed that Ivy and little Charles have become romantically involved. If you're keeping track, they are cousins. Uh, despite this, they plan to move to New York together to start a new life because Ivy just wants to get out you know, and start her own little thing because she stayed home and taking care of her parents. And little Charles um, gets berated by his mom consistently and kind of just needs to uh, find himself as a man. One night, also, uh, Steve and Jean are smoking weed, as they want to do. And Steve makes a pass at Jean, who is 14 years old, and this is profoundly fucked up. But Joanna saves the day and attacks him with the shovel. The commotion prompts Steve and Karen to head back to Florida, and Jean and Bill head back to Colorado. Uh, this later, Barbara learns from Maddie Faye that Charles is actually her half-brother because Maddie Faye and Beverly had an affair. And so Maddie Faye is like, Barbara, please break them up. They can't be together because they are brother and sister. Um, but before Barbara could do anything, Ivy is adamant about telling Violet that she is going to leave home and go to New York with Charles. And and Violet uh, actually reveals the news that your siblings, despite this, Ivy and Charles decide to still leave. Barbara, who is the last one still at home, learns from Violet that Violet had received a call from Beverly's motel uh, when he left home and she chose not to do anything until she had taken money out of their joint safe deposit box. And by this time, Beverly had killed himself. So uh, that's kind of the last straw for Barbara, who has kind of had to come to grips with the fact that she has her mother's anger, despite the fact that she tried to kind of profile herself as an academic like her father. This prompts her to leave home, leaving Violet with just Joanna. The movie ends with Violet dancing around to music and Barbara driving out west. 
that was pretty scatterbrained, but how did I do? That was pretty good, though. It's a lot when it's like, there's a lot of like side character interaction that all sets it up. It's definitely a play. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is also like why I picked it. <laughs> so to that point, why did you pick this movie? So I feel like this is a really good stage adaptation. I feel like not every play can be on the screen in the same way. Sometimes you need that live theater effect. So like, for example, A24 put out The Humans a few years ago. And while parts of it were good, it just didn't hit in the same way as seeing it on stage would have. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of bringing that energy to a film. But it's also like one of the most important like modern plays. Um, and fortunately, like made for a pretty good movie. So I was excited to put this together. All right, Zach, what were your first impressions? So I have no familiarity with Tracy Letts as the writer. I kind of only know him as the dad in Lady Bird and um, one of the coaches in Winning Time. Like I'm just wholly unfamiliar with his work. I have never put it together that Tracy Letts from Lady Bird is Tracy Letts the playwright. Yes. That's so crazy. Obsessed with the way he says Doritos in Lady Bird. <laughs> <laughs> just wants to get a big old bag of Doritos. But this was his uh, his fourth play. The play won a Pulitzer. Uh, very decorated theater writer and actor. So um, I just thought that was cool to, to learn. Uh, he was also born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So hmm. in a way, this is uh, close to home. Even though he yeah. grew up in Dallas, I think it was. Um, um, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. I don't really have any familiarity with his like style of writing or his style of stage play, so it was kind of cool to familiarize myself with that. Yeah, he is like quite a a guy in in the theater. He started his career at the Steppenwolf Theater, which is a huge, widely famous um, modern theater in Chicago. Started in like the seventies. Gary Sinise is like one of the founders hmm. of the Steppenwolf Theater Company, but that is like one of the better off-Broadway playhouses um, in all of America. And like if you can get anything there, that's pretty incredible. But then it was his Broadway debut was for August Osage County. And then he was also in the Broadway revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And he won um, his Tony for that. So Oh, wow. He is a big name in in theater. I'm so jealous that he's also married to Carrie Coon, um, <laughs> who just is the best. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I saw that and I was like, ah, Amanda's girl. I did see that Killer Joe and Bug were both adapted into movies and he also wrote those screenplays. And then he also wrote Period Donuts, which got turned into a TV show that he wrote. Um, nice. So he really liked to take it you know, full way through. It also makes me uh, happy that he's a big theater person, again, strictly in the under the lens of Lady Bird, just knowing that Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach love to cast like theater superstars for mm -hmm. uh, small parts in their films. So uh, that's cool as well. The other thing that stood out about this movie is this is like a lot of acting. Mm -hmm. Like it's like the most acting. Everybody gets to capital A act. Like Meryl is really going batty, almost to the point of like, caricatureness but it's it makes sense that this is like a, a play that people loved which is a weird sentence but like it seems like it would be a fun play for people to act into because you get to really just go all the way through the back row with your performance it's really obvious when you're watching this movie that meryl started on on the stage before she was like ever in movies and she like famously has said that 
She never wanted to be in films until she saw Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. Um, And then she was like, oh, this is, you can like be a real actor and like do this. This is cool. So it's obvious that she has the skill to like, quote unquote, play to the back of the room. Um, And she dials all that in. It's very cool. Yeah. And it, uh, and I don't know how much this is knowing it was, you know, written from a play, but it also just is extremely, this is a play. Yeah. There's a lot of monologuing. There's a lot of monologuing. There's a lot of contained scenes where people are like, and now I will exit stage left. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is entertaining. Or, and we'll talk about the uh, difficulties or the advantages of of adapting a play to the screen but it felt like they were like you know what let's just put this play on screen we'll talk about you know more adaptations too that kind of do that similarly but it was a little bit like you know whenever like superstars all join a team and it's like your turn my turn like a team sport <laughs> yeah like, does that happen in hockey um no but i understand what you're talking about yeah it's, it's just like iso ball for julia roberts or iso ball for Meryl. Meryl does a lot of iso ball in this one. Yeah. Every time there was going to be a big scene, you almost got prompted like, this is going to be an emotional scene. It's time now. This is going to be an angry moment. This is going to be a considerate moment. And all the sisters are walking to their mom and they're going to have maybe an emotional moment, Mm -hmm. like a a softer moment. So it's kind of easy to read that way too. Yeah, definitely. The last thing that I thought of immediately was, didn't see the brother twist coming. Didn't see that. I know. The first time it takes you by such surprise. And the uh, casualness with which it's said, kind of. It's like, Maddie Faye's like, they can't be together. They're siblings. <laughs> and you're like, oh, should we make breakfast now then? Like, <laughs> it's like I don't, I don't want to make these assumptions about the planes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but then my other part of my brain, I'm... Uh, you know, I have watched all of Game of Thrones and I'm in the thick of reading the second book right now. And so I'm like, well, I guess if they, you know, everybody has somebody. She had a hysterectomy. They can't have kids. Like, that's why you can't like be with your brother because you can't reproduce. Is it, isn't it illegal too? I'm sure it is. But yeah, that part was just, was just wild. And just, uh, and also like maybe they won't legally get married. Maybe they'll just be together. That's true. Um, man, I just you just feel bad for Ivy throughout the whole movie because she's the one that stays and she feels a type of way about that, obviously. And then she has like finally some hope and and, and it's your sibling. Julia Nicholson's so good in this movie when she drives away and she's just like you can see this look on her face. Not only is she hurt, but more than that, she's like done. And like she's so frustrated. And she's like taking a step for herself, and clearly it's for the first time in her. In her entire life. it's She's really good in this film. I think of outside the two main stars of this film. I think she's the standout for sure. Yeah. Um, there's just like a weatheredness to her. I really enjoy it. We'll talk about favorite scenes. But I enjoyed the scene with the sisters all chatting in the sunroom or whatever. I have that written down too. Yeah. Just breaking down each other's lives. As somebody with many siblings, we've had many of those conversations, not that viscerally and not that violently, but, um, yeah. you know, love a good sibling movie, as you do love a good sister movie. Did you ever get to watch Mayor of Easttown? I know you're debating it. I have not yet, no. So she plays Mayor's best friend and is really good in the show. She got a um, an Emmy for Sporting Actress in a limited series for that role. Oh, yeah. good for her. All right, so aside from Julianne Nicholson's amazing performance, 
What else have you thought about most since you finished watching it? This is also what I thought about the most while watching it. It's like what makes a good stage to screen adaptation when it's not a musical. Yeah. I feel like, you know, musical theater adaptations can be a lot, not easier, but clearer in a way to like this. Let's bring it to the big screen and have these big numbers and big set pieces. Um, But when it's just people talking for 90 minutes to two hours, um, how do you do that effectively? I can't yet figure out what I like or dislike about these because I love the contained story, but there's sometimes where the the like adaptations get a little stagnant or a little there's no dynamic aspect to like the filmmaking of it. It's like you just set the camera and let it go and it's a lot of medium shots. So I, I wanted to like One Night in Miami a lot. Yeah, I agree. But there's just something missing. Glenn Garrigan Glenn Ross is like a legendary adaptation, um, which was really effective and there's like something like you know 12 angry men where it's like literally contained and it can sometimes feel claustrophobic but sometimes you need that and i think this is one of those movies that benefits from that claustrophobic feeling especially juxtaposed to like the oklahoma setting it's funny because the word i was thinking of is intimate which is also the other side of claustrophobic <laughs> <laughs> right like uh like the humans is a very claustrophobic story for yeah sure. but like Straight plays are so intimate because it is just people on stage telling you what's up. There's no distraction of like, I don't really care about the in-between, but I love the songs. Like, there is no distraction. It's just what it is. And I understand your point about like some adaptations can feel like they're just setting up a camera because that's what you're doing while you're watching a play. You're just sitting there watching them. There's only one angle. Um, and things like that. But so I've never seen August Osage County on stage. I would love to, but I love that there are moments in the movie when you could tell when like a very dramatic moment happens in a in a play and the whole room is silent right after like a raucous sat like explosion from a character, and then you can like hear a pin drop and you can like hear your neighbor breathing for just like those two beeps before the like actor comes in with the next line. I feel like I could feel that in the movie, even though I was just like in my apartment. And I think that that is one of the reasons why I think this adaptation is really good. I think that's where the the hard part is like you don't have that adrenaline rush or that uh, to use the word again, intimacy of seeing someone 20, 30, 10 feet from you um, portray this character or this emotion. It's There's a screen there and the camera translates in different ways. Like a full body shot on camera doesn't provide the same like feeling as seeing someone's full body acting out on stage because there's that blockage between you. There's that distance. But also in reverse, like you can do a tight shot in a film and portray emotion that you can't do on stage and you have to as an actor get that emotion out to your audience totally and i think i think something that i don't like sometimes about the straight play adaptations is when the performances kind of feel like they're on stage and like some of the performances in this movie feel like they're on stage. That's so funny because uh, that's why I like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, because like I'm like, oh, it's on movie. Like I guess, uh, and this is where it's like, I even think about this with like some novel adaptations or m- most adaptations. Where do you change it? Like, how does the movie or how does the story uh, shift when it gets put onto a movie screen? That's where if it's like an in between 
aspect i'm like all right like either be on stage or bring the kind of more up and down emotional levels that kind of movies benefit from and like this isn't like as the movie as a whole i feel like that way in terms of osage county it's just like performance to performance and Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about like the individual performances in like like 17 seconds I think that's really interesting. I, I think it's a great point, and I love like hearing your perspective on this. This is why we podcast together. But I feel like last year I found myself watching a few movies being like, I'm sure this is adapted from a book, parentheses, found out all of them were, because this would make a great book. I could see myself being really wrapped in it as like something I'm reading, but it's not 100% translating for me watching it. So like Knock at the Cabin, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, I was like, the movie is fine, but I'm like, if I was reading it, I can imagine I wouldn't be able to put it down. And like the Sam Esmail movie, Leave the World Behind, that was also a book. And I could imagine reading the book being like, oh, what's going to happen? And, right, yeah. And he also like added big set pieces into that movie that weren't in the book because he had the freedom of making a movie and stuff like that. It's it's impactful when you see all the Teslas lined up against each other, but it's hard to like write that. So yeah. I, it it's it, it is interesting to watch being able to tell that something is an adaptation. Yeah, I think too with and this might just be maybe not wholly specific to Let's's writing, but at least specific to this movie. I think the writing itself isn't like short change, but like super like subtle or deep or like of it's depending on the performance to like evoke this emotion. Like, yeah, it's a performance heavy movie. Yeah. And like, let's to spin it forward to my next thing I thought about the most is Julia Roberts career in the 2010s. And every actress has a tricky time from like 35 to 45 when they've been a star in their 20s. Because mm-hmm. um, Hollywood doesn't know what to do with women. Especially if you are always as beautiful as Julia Roberts. Right. And immediately <laughs> as like star power and also yeah. tabloid star as Julia Roberts. I think she's by far the best person in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's because like, so a line that I was like, oh, you're eating this dialogue up and this performance up is when she says, thank God we can't tell the future or we'd never get out of bed. And she doesn't overact it. She just delivers it. Mm -hmm. And on stage, you probably need to be like big accent, big dip into that line. And she just kind of goes straight into it. And Mm -hmm. I think she has that like variance in her performance that I appreciated more. Yeah. No, she's incredible in this movie. Definitely the second time, like, rewatching it for the pod, she was, like, my big standout. Yeah, and I think, too, uh, that's she was kind of the barometer. Like, I thought her scenes with Chris Cooper, with, with uh, Martindale, I think it was clear that, like, they got how to interpret it for the screen. But then someone, like, I love him, but Ewan McGregor or Dermot Moroni, like, kind of drowned in the, like, nether region of... Do I overact this? Am I overacting it? Do I under deliver it? So I was thinking more of like, you know, she got nominated for this film and like looking at her career in the 2010s. I'm just going to run through it really quick um, from 2010 to 2019. She has Valentine's Day, Eat, Pray, Love, Larry Crown, Mirror, Mirror, August Osage County, Secret in Their Eyes, Mother's Day, Money Monster, Smurfs, The Lost Village, Wonder, and Ben is Back. There's like two real movies in that. Yeah, that's. That's tough. It's like super weird. And like you can even spin it back to the the 2000s. Like after she wins the Oscar for Aaron Brockovich, she goes on quite a journey. And it's like almost a little. It's a bummer because 
I mean, she has a lot of act. Like, she was great in Leave the World Behind. She was great. I mean, there are very few um, movies she's in that she's not great in. It just happens that the movies yes. themselves are not awesome. She, yes. She doesn't always pick the best projects, but she's always the best part of it, whatever she picks. I loved her in Ticket to Paradise, too. Like, I, that movie strictly is entertaining, strictly because of her and George Clooney mm-hmm. um, and Caitlin Deaver, but I just enjoy Caitlin Deaver as a performer. I mean, but this is also like prime material for an actor who wants to be taken seriously and should be taken seriously. And I think it digs into the part of Julia Roberts that I think is like the capital A actor because the, the smile and the laugh is like what makes her a movie star, right? Yeah. Um, but I think her ability to harness this uh, temper and this anger and then explode at the right times and then simmer down and have that conflict is what makes her like a special actor or a special performer like the way she can ramp up to a line like eat the fish bitch and then simmer back down to like ah, damn, i just really have conflicting feelings about my mother mm-hmm. um i thought it was real like deft in the way she handled it you just always want to look at her like she yeah. can just hold every room which is also why she's like excellent in movies that are not that good she just is the most interesting person in everything and it's you know being gorgeous and being witty and like having just like an aura about her of course helps but like there's she's just like she's so magnetic and i think that that is another reason why i wanted to have you watch this movie because meryl is also someone who's always the person you look at and then to have them both in this movie but you get that you know the twinge at the end where ivy says you're just like her. And the reason Julia Roberts and Meryl Streep can both be the women you're always looking at is because the characters are cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And I think, too, with, with Julia, and we'll, we transition to my next part, point, but I think the thing with Julia Roberts, too, is like, again, not to be sports bro, but like with athletes, there's those that make the most of their gifts. And like with like a fighter, if someone's really, if they have really long limbs, sometimes not all fighters with long limbs fight long well. Or, like, not all fighters who are, like, really blocky, like, fight on the inside well. But mm-hmm. I feel like Julia Roberts understands that all her features are big. Like, a big smile, big eyes. Big hair. Um, yeah, big hair. Yeah. Uh, a distinct jawline. And she doesn't have to do a lot on screen because she has all those tools. She's so cool. Yeah, Julia Roberts rocks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen I, Steel Magnolias? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Fuck have you seen yeah. Mystic Pizza? I haven't. Oh, we should totally do Mystic Pizza. It's been on oh, my that list one's for so a long good. time. Um, or you could just watch it. It's so good. But anyway, uh, to spin it forward to, you know, you brought up Meryl. While watching this, I was thinking, does Meryl Streep have a signature role? And I don't know if she does. I'm really interested in this question. I don't know if you ever see my Twitter um, polls, but occasionally I'll put up a Twitter poll like, what will be this actor's first like listing in their obituary? And I did it for Ewan McGregor, but I would love to know Meryl's because I feel like it's so generational what you know her by. I'm really excited, spoiler alert, for next month because that is one of my favorite Meryl Streep performances of all time. And so that is like on high on my list. But I would assume it would be Kramer versus Kramer. I guess, but she's not in most of that movie. I know. 
It also could be Sophie's Choice. Like, I know that's not on your on your list, but that it's like a huge Meryl movie. Yeah, the thing is, I, she's so always many. just been an actor's actor, and she is so great that she is a movie star. It's almost like the Daniel Day-Lewis thing. Like, what's Daniel Day-Lewis's signature role? It's Daniel Day-Lewis, the actor. I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis, like, the first thing that's going to... Because I'm, ex- you know, I don't know if you've written obituaries. I don't know how long you were in news. No, I made obituary videos. Yes. Yes. God. Never forget. <laughs> um, but... Where it's like Meryl Streep passed away at blah, 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 blank, blank, blank actress, yada, 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 and things like that. I want to know, like, what, what's the first? Like, what's the number one thing people are going to say? I, I say Sophie's Choice because it was her first Best Actress nomination, but it also came in the same year as her Best Supporting Actress nomination for Kramer vs. Kramer. <laughs> Um, but she also did win her first o- Oscar for the Deer Hunter. Like, there's so much going on. Yeah. So I think, and to like juxtapose it, like Julia Roberts will be like, pretty woman. And, yeah. and then from there, I think the best I maybe predictor of that first line in the obituary is like the Wikipedia page. Because usually for actors, they're like, best known for this role or these roles. Mm-hmm. And Meryl's is literally best Known as the best actress of her generation. <laughs> yeah, known for her versatility and accent adaptability. I think that's what I mean by like her her signature role is Meryl, the greatest actor. I think it's going to be for season three of Only Murders in the Building. Of course, clearly. She's so good in that <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be for Death Becomes Her. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> her screaming performance of Big Little Lies is just... <laughs> they're gonna show <laughs> and i think that's the thing she's in the crowd of like you know tom hanks denzel washington any of the greatest actors oh, yeah where if you ask 20 people in a room what their three favorite meryl street movies are you'll probably get like 60 different answers yeah no absolutely i think for people our age we think of her as like miranda Priestley from devil wears prada or as julia child and julia julia mm-hmm or, or Mamma Mia. I was going to say, or Mamma Mia. <laughs> I thought uh, Wesley Morris put it well in his article in Grantland in his review of this movie. He said, quote, she's too much of a shape-shifting legend to be stuck in any one part. She's like Madonna. But had Street played Violet in 1983, her career, as we know it, might be over. And I thought that was a really hmm. succinct way to put, like, this is like a really out there performance. Mm-hmm. Like, she's got the deep accent. She's got... The wig, she's got the glasses on. She's spitting vinegar in every line that she says. And she's this looming antagonist over the whole movie, basically. Um, and loom- looming just abuser of everyone's emotions. Cooked down to no better moment than like the breakfast scene mm-hmm. where she's, you know, truth telling or whatever um, and just digging the knife deeper and deeper. And the performance got her one of her many record. For many, many, yeah. Nominations for a Golden Globe, a SAG, and an Academy Award. We can just talk about it now. We texted about this a little bit of how the breakfast scene reminded us of the Fishes episode in season two of The Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, spoilers for season two of The Bear, like skip ahead four minutes. <laughs> Violet and Jamie Lee Curtis's character in The Bear are like cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Where they're just erratic, 
emotionally abusive and i think violet knows a bit more of what she's doing compared to jamie lee curtis's role in the bear but there's just such chaos at that table and it's just uncomfortable and you want to say excuse me can i leave this table i'm not hungry anymore it feels like a ticking time bomb like the whole time she's just spitting in everyone's food and like the karen character uh juliette lewis feels like the sister in the bear where you're like Stop trying to pretend like this is going to be nice. You're just giving fuel to the fire. Just like shut up, put your head down. And but there's always that one sibling like it it always happens. So it's really the parallels I thought were really good. This is going to be an insane take. I don't think I like Meryl Streep in this movie. Like the performance. Interesting. I disagree, but that's fine. (laughs) I just think it's just I mean, I know it's probably supposed to be this like over the top and stuff, but um sometimes it feels like she's in a different movie until the scene where she talks about wanting the boots oh god that's so sad which is super sad and then like every actor can be like different volumes and stuff but i feel like that's where she kind of locks into the same movie as everyone else i think and it's not just because it's supposed to feed you a little bit of empathy to the character or anything like that um i just do think she finds that like oscillation between like the big parts of the performance and like the the quieter emotions that she can clearly do on screen as we've seen for like decades at this point. Yeah, I know you disagree sure. with me. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What were some of the things you looked up after watching the film? The play in general, like mm-hmm. what it had uh, accomplished <laughs> it. Hella Tony's and, yeah. and the Pulitzer. Um, <laughs> congrats to everybody involved. And then on the same spin uh, with the Oscars, Julia Roberts got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and she lost to Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave. And Meryl Streep uh, was nominated for Best Actress, who lost to Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine. This was also the Ellen Selfie Oscars. Oh, which Meryl's in, if I remember correctly. Yeah. This is also the Oscars that Lupita Nyong'o wore the blue dress, which is, to me, the most beautiful any person has ever looked in the history of man. That's a good shout. That's a nice, that's like a like a nice underrated shout too. Yeah. All right. What was your favorite scene of the film? The breakfast scene is the most the signature scene, I think. But my favorite is eat the fish, eat the fish, eat the fish, bitch. Oh, we're throwing things. I can break things too. Look at this. <laughs> so funny. Uh, yeah, that's uh, she's playing a character who has a child. It's like no, it's incredible oldest sister energy. <laughs> I. <laughs> have also broken things i understand (laughs) i think my favorite scene is either the sisters all chatting because it's just it's very sweet but there is the like we don't know you you left and then who can blame me for leaving i'm not the one who made you stay and no that's very classic but i like that scene i also really like the scene where um meryl streep finds out that she's might have to be sent to a a center and Mm. she fake sick to get out the car and then like runs and then oh yeah julie roberts has to go run after her and they have this very much like we're both so exhausted because of this situation all right do you have any questions for me yeah do you have favorite like stage to movie adaptations i do i have a lot of good ones two of mine are in my like suggestions if you liked this movie but Fences is just one of my favorite plays Mm -hmm. of all time. I've read the script. It's taught often as a book in school. 
I've seen it on stage a handful of times. It's one of those things, like, anytime I see someone doing it, I try to go to it. Um, And then it was Viola Davis and Denzel Washington Mm -hmm. who did it. Um, I think I went, like, the week it opened. It was, of course, a smash hit. (laughs) Yeah. It was so good. They're so good in it. Um, But that is another, like, movie that feels like a play. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I like that one a lot. Yeah, I wanted to shout out. It's not my favorite, but I enjoyed it a lot. Is uh, Barefoot in the Park? Um, mm-hmm. It's a movie that stars Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. They're beautiful people, and we'll talk more about Robert Redford's beauty in like five minutes. Do you have any other like comments or questions? Yeah, I do have one comment, and then one question. So mm-hmm. Juliette Lewis is, plays Karen, and she is probably best known for being in Cape Fear, or more modernly in yellow jackets um she kind of has like a very big um television career but she was not originally supposed to play karen andrea riseborough was <laughs> and i thought that was funny <laughs> that, that is funny uh shout out to last year's oscars that's yeah. funny i also wh- what i know juliette lewis from the most is national lampoon's christmas vacation Oh, yeah. As the daughter. She is in that. <laughs> That's good. She's also in Mixed Nuts, which is an okay movie, but it's a Nora Ephron movie. <laughs> yeah. She's awesome in in Yellow Jackets. She's really oh, cool. good. Nice. Um, But yeah, she's just like a fun... Anytime I see her kind of pop up, I'm like, oh, yeah, what what's she up to? And then the, the question I wanted... We've been kind of discussing this, but... Um, for a movie like this, like where do you draw the line between like overacting and like performing the bigness, I guess, of something like August Osage County? I think it depends when you're going for it. It just depends on the the whole machine of the movie. Yeah. Um, are the people in the in the same like matching the energy? Has the emotions to that point been earned? watch any tom cruise movie when he cries do you feel a type of way or not like that determines whether he's overacting to me or not you know yeah um so that's where i feel a little bit of it with with meryl streep in this movie um far be it for me to critique acting i don't know anything about it um but it literally is just like does this work in this moment all right would you watch this movie again honestly probably not yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, as always, I'm happy I watched it. I'm happy I watched it too because I like Julia Roberts doesn't have a ton of good movies like we said in the last like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always good to like have a reason to go watch a movie I maybe don't like as much for the sake of like one of her better performances in my opinion. But if somebody did like this movie and wants more of it or more like it, uh, what should we watch? So I said Fences. I just think everyone should watch it in general. The other one I was alluding to that is also a play and also has Meryl Streep is the movie Doubt. That is a tough watch, but it is really good. Um, Viola Davis is also in that movie for like a hot second and then gets an Oscar nomination. Um, Amy Adams and uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman are like the main four actors. It's it's a good movie. This is where I leave you is like on the opposite oh, of the yeah. spectrum. It is it a great movie? I don't know, but it always makes me feel good. It's also jam packed with stars. Um, not a single person is Jewish in this movie. <laughs> about dysfunctional family gets back together through father based tragedy, but it was also very fun. 
Yeah, um, charming movie. Yeah. And then I wanted to put this out here, but I haven't seen this movie, so I don't want to give it like a full stamp of approval, but it is probably the most well-known adaptation of like my other favorite play that I've read, um, which is Eugene O'Neill's A Long Day's Journey into Night. Eugene O'Neill, wildly famous playwright, many theaters named after him. Um, Long Day's Journey into Night, truly one of the best pieces of writing ever um but Sidney Lumet uh did an adaptation in 1962 featuring Katherine Hepburn she was nominated for best actress for that movie again I haven't seen it so I can't give it a full stamp of approval but I just wanted to throw that one in in the mix because it fits into this sort of vibe yeah I think that movie and then Mike Nichols um who's afraid of Virginia Woolf are like the two big adaptation uh that I want to see that I have not yet seen. Great Rex, fun film to watch and fun film to talk about. I'm glad, to, yes. I'm glad we got to. All right. Well, now we have a very different vibe, but we also get to talk about baseball. So I'm very excited. Yeah, I was going to say just as like deeply Americana um, as a family in Oklahoma. But first, let's take a break. Amanda, you're the best goddamn podcaster I ever saw. Suit up. You watched The Natural. What happened in this film? Ain't that right. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. So the movie starts in Nebraska where a kid is playing catch with his dad. The dad tells him that he's got natural talent, um, but that he needs to work hard in order for it to mean anything. Soon the father passes away and a tree outside of the kid's window is struck by lightning and like balls the he makes a baseball bat out of the wood from the tree and inscribes wonder boy with a lightning bolt in homage um fast forward and that boy roy hobbs is now robert redford and he is telling his childhood sweetheart iris played by glenn close that he got a chance to make it with the cubs but that he wants to marry her when he gets back roy goes on the road to the cubs meeting and meets the whammer who's like a big shot hitter on the way there they stop at like a carnival um he strikes him out in front of everyone and everyone stares in amazement and around this time he also meets harriet bird who's a beautiful and mysterious woman and when they are alone in his hotel room she shoots him and then commits suicide which i texted you oh my god <laughs> he got shot <laughs> i wasn't expecting that at all all right, we fast forward again, and now Roy is an older man who never really made it in the big leagues in baseball. He floated around from place to place. He had, like, been on some teams, but mostly kept a low profile. Um, he gets put on the New York Knights, which is not a real team. Um, it's real in the case of the movie, but they also use other actual MLB names in the movie, so it was very confusing. Um, because of his age, the manager, Pops, is suspicious that Roy's hiring is an ulterior motive by the team's owner, um, suspiciously called the judge. Um, eventually, he gives Roy a chance to pinch hit, and he literally knocks the baseball into pieces. 
Um, him and his team are now on the up and up and they become a baseball sensation. Reporter Max Mercy, played by Robert Duvall, has a hunch that he knows Roy, but he can't figure it out. The team's assistant manager tells Roy that he has a little bit of insight that if the Knights lose the pennant this year, the team's ownership will go to the judge, who is a very shady man. The judge tries to bribe Roy and he declines and he finds out that this is unlike some of his past teammates and he's basically bribing them to lose, um, which is probably why the Knights were so bad for so long when they got there. Max Mercy figures out that he saw Roy pitch all those years ago against the Hammer and he sets up the judge with Gus Sands, who is a gambler from that time, um, who is also betting against Roy. Around this same time, Roy also meets Memo. The two are falling in love, and now the team is in a rut because he's distracted by this beautiful woman he's spending all of his time with. Uh, One game when he's playing poorly and the whole thing just kind of feels like it's falling apart, he looks up into the stands and he sees a beautiful woman dressed in all white, and it's Iris back with him again. She's been hearing about his sensationalism. And goes to the game to see him. The two rekindle lightly as he is still in a relationship. And it gives the team their mojo back. Um, Trying to get them to lose. Memo poisons Roy at a party. And it sends him to the hospital. Where they find out the bullet from years ago had been making him worse this whole time. Now he is faced with an issue. He can either play baseball and rip his stomach lining and die. Or he can never play baseball again. And they are, of course, one game away from the World Series, because that's how these things go. The judge tries to offer him $20,000, which I did look up is $105,000 now um, (laughs) to throw the game. Um, But he declines. He puts his health on the line. He plays that final game. He finds out that he has a son with Iris, all like in the same (laughs) few minutes. And he hits one right into the lights to dramatically win the game. How did I do? You did great, except you left out the last part where at the end he's having a catch with his son. Then they're back in the field and he's playing catch with his son and it's a a parallel to the uh, beginning. It's one of the like three most handsome moments any person on the planet has ever had. It's like Robert Redford in a field playing catch with his son, Brad Pitt on a boat, and then like insert the third one. But you did great. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Why did you pick this movie? It's a fun adaptation in terms of it's uh, adapted from a novel, but also um, we'll talk about this later. It's so heavily influenced from like Greek mythology that it it's a fun like modern take on on these uh, on that story. Also, any excuse to get Robert Redford on the pod, and just like a one of those just down the middle dad movie favorites um, that is you know, so specially captured in a baseball movie. How can you not be romantic about baseball? What stood out? Uh, what were your first impressions? So as we basically just discussed, this movie is incredibly Americana. To me, he is like the quintessential American actor. It's also a Great Depression era baseball movie. Um, all of those things hit the uh, the Americana nostalgia button. And it's a movie where good triumphs evil, baseball triumphs sickness, a natural gets another shot at a dream. And it's just like so typically like this is why we love America. But 
it is still very good. <laughs> I I've thought this so many times. I think I was thinking about this particular sentiment when he throws the slow motion pitch to strike out the whammer and get the get mm-hmm. the girl and the you know we're at a random fair. This shit's so corny, but like I love it. But that was like the other thing that I thought a lot about, or like what first stood out to me is the fact that like it borders on too corny sometimes. Oh, yeah. But I feel like it really walks the line where it's like just enough that I don't feel like the whole tone of the movie is corny. Just some moments I thought about while I was watching it. The lightning strike right as he hits the baseball for the first time. Then the baseball breaking in parts. The team come up like now that he can hit. Now the whole team is good at baseball (laughs) when he hits the clock as he's like trying to get his mojo back. And he hits the light at the end, of course. They are uh, just almost too corny, but because there's so many other like really level-headed parts of the movie, I think it it tones it all down. This movie is just white America AF, mm-hmm. but there is just something like, all right, well, he found his old flame and, and they have a kid and he hit the ball out of the park and... You know They're going what? to the it, World Series. And... and everything worked out. And it's Robert Redford. And I yeah. think it, you know, it's, it's because it's Robert Redford. <laughs> I will say yeah. that the uh, I have general baseball thoughts to discuss later. But yes. um, this past season for the Diamondbacks, we were expected to be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were very good and very fun. And then we went to the World Series. Like Snakes the, alive. Dude, it like all of this. I was like, oh, yeah. I'm a New York Knights fan, it turns out, (laughs) just in the (laughs) desert. (laughs) I I think that's the thing, too, like, not to keep harkening back to the Moneyball line, but, like, baseball is just like that. It's slower. It's got to have these, like, chance moments that it's like, how can you not believe in something bigger going on than just the sport? What else stood out to you when you first watched? So in this, like, same idea that, like, it borders on too corny, but, like, it, it also, like, nails it is... Right after the the first time that he hits the ball and it breaks, there's this lightning strike and like the team is getting its mojo back. It It's like a jump cut and the whole team has the lightning bolt patch on their yeah. jersey. And like that is just like great sports movie stuff. That is great baseball stuff too. Like so much of a baseball team is built around camaraderie. And yeah. like you can have some of the very best players on your team. But if like the team vibe is wrong, the whole thing can go to hell. And I feel like the not to keep bringing it back, but like the Diamondbacks rode on vibes alone for like <laughs> the whole season. And we made it to this, the World Series. Like we were just a team you wanted to watch because they were just like dudes playing a game they love. Like it was just so fun. Yeah, I think too. It's just because like baseball is the most superstitious sport of all. It does just capture this quintessential throwback kind of like baseline sports movie thing of like mm-hmm. there's so many games and there's just like so much time spent together yeah what else stood out to you i think the movie is really beautifully shot like i think mm-hmm. that there are some very gorgeous scenes in this movie one that like really stood out to me is when memo like shows up at his hotel room in her fur coat and she like undresses and it's just like the fur is at her feet and like the neon lights behind her obvious like that's just like it's so stunning um obviously the big end scene with the lights like coming down while he's running the bases i get chills every time that was what i noticed like oh i 
I do know this movie. Okay, I have seen this <laughs> online, but I didn't like connect it until that moment. There's just a lot of moments like that where it's like, wow, this movie is really beautiful. So Caleb Deschanel is the cinematographer of the movie. He has six Oscar nominations, including for this film. Um, but also famously, he has two daughters, Emily and Zoe, who you may know as um, Bones and Jess from New Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Summer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. I do think the cinematography is a big part of like why the melodrama works. I think like in the same sort of vein, I thought that the editing was really good because it plays like the ink like baseball is played like very incrementally i mean that's kind of dumb like all sports are played incrementally but like i don't know it just feels like something happens and then nothing could happen for three innings and then something big can happen and then nothing could happen and then two big there's things no happen. clock in baseball like oh, well, i guess now, now there is, there is but <laughs> but yeah you know same idea like and i felt like the editing watching like the gameplay made it feel like baseball and it's really like hard to make that happen um so yeah. Stu linder is the movie's editor and he is a longtime collaborator of barry levinson who is the director of this film yeah i think that's a good shout like so many of the conversations that happen just in the dugout and like full conversations that happen within an inning really, really stands out so i think that's a good point to like why the movie feels just so grounded or why you feel so attached to like the dynamic of this team that you don't really know anything about. And then my last like three things that stood out to me are are kind of quick thoughts, but toward the end he says, "I used to look for you in crowds," and that's just incredibly romantic. Oh, yeah, one hundred percent. That's a really good line. I also like in the scene where Memo poisons Roy. Uh, she's in this like white dress with a bow in the back, and it is like extreme. Betty Draper shit. Like, she looks <laughs> so good. She also looks a lot like a character like Renee Zellweger could play. Like, I don't know. I just, like, got this, like, January Jones, Renee Zellweger vibe, but, like, in the 40s. It was just, like, a really cool outfit, and I like the costuming, um, specifically of the women in this film. I know it's a period piece itself, but it does feel like this movie is shot as, like, a 40s thing mm -hmm. kind of like how the holdovers is shot as a 70s movie yes and takes place in the 70s yes um it kind of gives that same energy um the other thing i wanted to say is just what i titled general amanda baseball thoughts yes um i love that baseball can be a big boy sport like i love that there are just fat dudes playing baseball like that just like <laughs> makes me so happy i love a big boy playing baseball it is yeah. not something that can happen in pretty much any other sport i guess football but like you need those players aren't they're defenders more than they are like on offense where they're, like, they're using their size for a reason correct where like every single person who plays baseball has to play offense and defense <laughs> like that's just how the game works um and i just when it was like i wrote this down when they uh when they meet the the whammer and he's kind of a, a big guy, but there's a few more people that come around, but it's just a very fun baseball thing that can happen. 
Right. The fact that the greatest baseball player or the most legendary one is Babe Ruth, who like housed hot dogs and beer. Totally. Um, yeah, 100%. Um, I also, I love a pitcher. Most of my favorite baseball players are pitchers. Um, and I love a wacky pitch. And I feel like Robert Redford has a has a wacky pitch. He steps <laughs> really far out. Um, his wind oh, it's up such is, a good throwback. His wind like up, wind yeah. up is really tall. Um, so I just I enjoyed that part of it too. Um, what have you thought about the most since watching? Well, first, baseball is a really good like ASMR sport. I love like yeah. the sounds of baseball. But in that same notion, I think the sound design in this movie is really fun. Um, it like emphasizes those sounds a lot and like you could probably just listen to it and still have a great time when i was in college uh, i got a chance to cover spring training in arizona nice and my professor you know i i told him i was like how do you shoot baseball like you know what's up he goes oh you're gonna have such an easy time there's so many natural pops Mm -hmm. um to convey a story with just sound when it comes to baseball the crack of a bat the ball into a mitt yeah, that's guys a being good dudes. One. Yeah, I it's love all great. Ball into a mitt. It's good. Um, <laughs> another thing I thought about was just that, like, man, Robert Redford's just like your all American cutie. He is just like a handsome American lad. It's great. Yeah. I'm so glad that like the world worked out in a way where he became a movie star. Absolutely. At all ages, he's beautiful and handsome. Yes. Um. I, I know these two are intrinsically tied because of the movies they made together, but I think the only person I could see that could pull off the same ingrained emotion, but also beauty that you could be like, oh, he used to be someone touted highly would be like Paul Newman. Yeah. Like you could see Paul Newman playing the same role. Yeah. Um, it, but yeah, just a gorgeous, gorgeous man and a, a good actor as well. And I also feel like a lot of the gorgeous actors of our generation i'm thinking people like leo dicaprio like leo was just like cute as a goddamn button the moment he was on screen yeah like but now i feel like you don't get as much recognition until you like quote unquote ugly yourself for a role totally and like that is something like redford's generation never dealt with and thus he's always beautiful on screen (laughs) (laughs) like every decade you can pick like what's your like most handsome robert redford totally there's something super charming about him in this movie too where you know he's playing kind of like the mysterious don't ask me about my past kind of guy but he's also still got this like sincere hope that he could be the best there ever was there's just something like trustworthy and winning about him that he's he's a movie star you know That, that not that they don't make them like that anymore, but we don't mold them like that anymore. We don't like let them be like that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like there's too much access to to movies. We don't have to get into the whole movie star complex. Um, and, and For, if you would like to know more about access to celebrity, please listen to our Amy <laughs> coverage. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, he just holds the center of this film really well. Yeah, and I also think that you know, I think that some movie stars are more beautiful and charismatic than they are good actors and some of them are better actors than they are beautiful and charismatic i think he's just like one of the select few in all of history that is like if he was an ugly talented guy he would still be one of our best actors he i mean obviously understands his power as a movie star but doesn't need to uglify himself so as to like put himself on the back foot in a role totally 
um, yeah, he he just can perform it and, you know, deliver the desperation or deliver the hope that's like, hey, like, I'm in the big leagues. Like, that moment where he finally gets to put on the uniform mm-hmm. and, like, for a split second, he lets himself be the 19-year-old kid again of, like, oh, my God, I finally have achieved my dream. That's the stuff. Yeah, it's so good. He also looks so fucking good in that Letterman jacket. Um, I just wanted to point out, like, a few more, like, why Robert Redford is one of the best, most well-rounded people in all of, like, American history. (laughs) Um, He is also an amazing director. Um, I don't know if you've seen Ordinary People, but, like, that movie is really well done. Um, I mean, he's directed, but A River Runs Through It. He's done, you know, Quiz Show. There's a bunch of other ones, but um, he like tested his hand at directing. He also, of course, quite famously created the Sundance Film Festival as like an area for independent cinema to thrive. And now it's like one of the biggest film festivals in the world. Like, that's so cool. Shout out Um, to the Sundance kid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's also like a huge activist. um, Very, very pro um, Native American rights, LGBT rights. lot of environmentalism the other uh thing that really hit me is that i loved the score from randy newman i mean that's not a groundbreaking thing to say but it is perfectly inspiring it's a little corny but you just can't help but like get wrapped up in it um yeah randy newman crushed it great job love that um what were some of the first things you looked up about this film so i needed to know how old redford was in this film because in the beginning, he's supposedly 19 years old, <laughs> which is very confusing. Incredibly jarring. I was like, wow, he's like so excited to get a call with the Cubs because he's like 50. <laughs> and then they're like, flash forward. And I'm like, to where? <laughs> um, so he's 47 at the time of filming. <laughs> One year later, River Phoenix acts in his first film. Uh, it's, it would be It would have been such a layup. Yep. I mean, I mean, he probably was probably a little too young. He's like 14 at the time and he needed like an actual 19 year old. Um, but it, it is wild. I'm like, I remember watching like you have like wrinkles, like nothing against wrinkles, but you are. You, you have lived 47. a life. Yeah, that's by far the funniest part of the film. <laughs> um, when he when they say, hey, welcome to the majors. I was like, but who is this team? <laughs> so it's a fictional team. Um, the Knights, but this was also at the time where baseball only had 16 teams, and then they use real team names to talk about people they're playing against, which is why it was so confusing to me. That's fair. Knights is just like a go-to fictional team name. Like I think of uh, in Like Mike, not to compare the natural in Like Mike, <laughs> the Los Angeles Knights, which yeah. also does not exist. Just like an easy, uh, an easy team name. Also, um, you know, you get to Arthurian legend stuff, too, um, with the New York Knights. Yes, that is true. Um, But yeah, that was the the other thing where I was like, wait, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Um, I wanted to know, of course, it's Oscars situation. So there were four nominations, no wins. Um, The only acting was, was for Glenn Close for Best Supporting Actress. And then two of the things that stood out to me, the cinematography and the music, both got nominated. And nice. the art direction team got nominated as well. Nice. In my like research, I found out that this was the first film produced by TriStar Pictures. Um, oh. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then I, because we were doing adaptations, I wanted to know how, if, if there were any changes from the book. 
um, to the movie. And there are. Everything is pretty much the same except the ending is wildly different. Um, at the end, he does take the bribe. Um, he actually one-ups and requests that the judge pay him $35,000. Like The judge is like, I'll give you $20,000. And he's like, mm, I'll do it for thirty five, And then takes the money and throws the game. And he makes the Knights lose their season. Wow. I know. Not nearly as exciting. What a piece of shit. Yeah. So glad it didn't end that way in the movie. Yeah, Robert Redford would never. No, that's not how this is going to run. What was your favorite scene from the movie? I think visually the favorite scene has to be, of course, the the baseball hitting the lights and then all the lights erupting as he's running the bases. But personally, my favorite scene is the lightning bolt patch jump cut. Do you have a favorite uh, scene? I mean, it's the iconic scene. It's him hitting the ball out of the park. I do really love uh, when he and Iris go to the diner. That was one of my original notes. I was like, we love a regular, and I also (laughs) adore lemonade, so this is great. Yeah, that was just, you know, candy to me. Did you have any other questions? Yeah, so toward the end when the judge is offering the $20,000 and Roy is not going to take it, and Memo shoots the gun again, and he says, you know what, I actually do think I remember, like, know you from a, a past life. Who did she shoot? Where did she shoot? She just shot, like, aimlessly. Like, like she gr- was, like the ground? Yeah, like she wanted to shoot Roy, but, like, couldn't or okay. didn't. Got it. Um, And then, did you know that the movie you chose is actually a double adaptation? I, I did know it was inspired by okay. both text and, I life. guess, life. Yeah. It is um, an, obviously an adaptation of a book called The Natural, but that was like inspired by a guy's life. Eddie Waitkiss um, was a Depression-era baseball player who was on the rise of a very promising career and was actually the victim of one of the first cases of criminal stalking when a female fan shot him in his hotel, just like the beginning of the movie. Ruth Ann Steinhagen, who was the... Uh, stalking shooter never stood trial but she was in a mental institution for a long time she did not commit suicide which is also why i wanted to put that note in there but i had no idea that it was like double inspired by look there's even a little true crime element in there for you can always find it (laughs) (laughs) all right do you have any questions or anything you want to get off your chest um i wanted to shout out the actor who played pop um wilford brimley oh yeah Uh, just Great managerial acting and also great chest hair Um, (laughs) when he's telling Roy that he's the best goddamn hitter he ever saw. It's fun to see Kim Basinger, like, young as Memo. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to shout out was um, there's so many, like, nods to mythology uh, in this film, like I was talking about earlier, um, to, like, the Iliad, to Arthurian legends, to the Odyssey, even to, like you know, in the Odyssey, like, he has his love, and then he, like, goes off on his adventure, and then, like, it's distracted by a siren, and then goes on a journey, and then comes back, and, you know, they have a kid, and all these things. Huh. Um I never put all that together. It's randomly for as, like, melodramatic and corny and wonderbread as this movie is, that you can also kind of put all this kind of academia onto it. A writer, Kevin Thomas Curtin, did write about the natural and these things, so he it's called uh, The Natural, Our Iliad, and Odyssey. Um, and you can find it like you just need like a 
library login basically and you can read this essay that he wrote um at the time and he puts it more succinctly than i could because i frankly don't read that you didn't do all the research he did (laughs) no i you know i was like you know what someone else has already done it but even to like the judge you know he's like he's in the dark and is in the shadows and he plays this figure tempting him at the end you know and also the judge is obviously inspiration for uh christopher nolan's bane you know he only adopted the dark was born in it molded by it (laughs) (laughs) didn't want to get too deep into that part because uh, i would just kind of get lost in the weeds of trying to explain a unit that i ignored when i was in high school despite this just being a kind of a basic sports movie uh there's a lot of different themes that you can uh look into as well but i will save you the trouble of uh listening to that for now that's so cool because i never picked up on like literally any of that we didn't do mythology in school and i don't know why but um i there's a lot of that i don't know about so i'm glad you brought it to the table yeah it's just a lot of bits and pieces from different ones and uh all centers on robert redford being a legend yeah hell yeah brother (laughs) with all that in mind would you want to watch this movie again i'd say sure i don't know if i'm gonna rush to see it again but if i'm in a robert redford mood or if baseball season is starting up again or something i'll maybe throw it on it was good yeah it's a good dosage of robert redford i do wish the movie was like an hour 45 instead of like 20 there's a lot of slow-mo yeah um but other than that i would say sure I get it. If people like this movie, what else should they watch? I mean, there's so many sports movies you could just go ahead and watch, but here's a trio. Um, the Rookie with Dennis Quaid. I love this movie. Yeah, this is some incredible like early 2000s Disney movie stuff. Another baseball movie about a man at an older age coming into Major League Glory. I've probably watched The Rookie no less than 30 times. When the kid is like, let me guess, don't tell mom. <laughs> Just like great, <laughs> corny. I just great. I love it. Another movie that is really just uh, the maybe core text of this sports movie is uh, Hoosiers. It's not my favorite basketball movie by any means, but it's Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper and the classic underdog story. And uh, and a lot of people will say that this is their favorite basketball movie. Like the same people that will say The Natural is their favorite baseball movie will say Hoosiers is their favorite <laughs> basketball movie. And then lastly, uh, to bring it to another sport. Friday Night Lights, um, another adaptation after a book. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the Paramount Panthers in West Texas. Uh, this is a movie with, again, with slow-mo, with uh, really captures the great parts of the sport with great music and uh, just gives you that tingly feeling inside that um, you want to feel when you're feeling down and out. Good movie. I know this isn't part of the movie, but Clear Eyes, Full Hearts Can't Lose. Yeah, good movie. Um, shout out to Billy Bob Thornton. Excellent TV show. Good movie, though. Yeah, it's like a rock solid good movie that isn't as good as the TV show. One of my greatest mistakes in middle school was my dad was like, let's go see a movie. It was between Shark Tale and Friday Night Lights. And I said, let's go see Shark Tale. You ride, you ride for that movie, though. You like that movie. I do, but but I didn't, I didn't pick Friday Night Lights because I saw a part in the preview where the helmet gets kicked into the guy's face and he's bloody. And I was like, oh, this movie might be violent. And I don't know if my dad will want me to see that. Oh. And then we went to Shark Tale and he fell asleep halfway through. A Robert De Niro classic. (laughs) A Martin Scorsese classic. Sorry, that's what I meant. No, no, no. They're both in it. Oh, they're both in it. (laughs) Dang it. Oh, God. What an insane. (laughs) All right. um, Well, we did it. We did another movie swap. I love it. It was a good time. I had had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Which movie would Louis love more? I feel like Louis loves The Natural. He loves The Natural. He's yeah. a dad and it's a dad movie. Absolutely. It's 100%. just, it's good. 
I wonder if Louis likes baseball. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, he he can't watch it. That's what I'm thinking. But we do know vampires love baseball. That's regarding true. Twilight. That's you know? canonical. <laughs> Canonically, vampires love baseball. All right, done. The natural. <laughs> we were right again. Oh gosh. Okay. So, uh, which movies are we talking about next, and w- that we will debate whether um, our beloved vampire loves more? Next month, in honor of the Oscars happening woo, woo. in March, March 10th. Now, mark your calendars. The Academy Awards. We are going to do another round of Best Picture winners. I think, honestly, every March, is, let's just make it happen. I think it's yeah, a great tradition. Yeah. Lock it in until they move the award show up. <laughs> yeah, which I I don't have enough time for that. We have a whole month. I know. It is a long time away. But <laughs> anyway, um, we're actually returning to a, uh, uh, a Meryl Streep movie with The Deer Hunter is the movie Zach's going to watch. And then French Connection is what I'm going to watch. Zach, what do you know about the deer hunter except for the fact that Meryl Streep's in it? Because I just told you. <laughs> um, I know De Niro, and I know. Um, I, I guess I just know De Niro because I, I was about to get it confused with Platoon. Uh, I know it's a Vietnam War era movie. I know it's a tough sit, and I know it's a long sit. But I know it's one of our most important uh, pieces of cinema, especially um, regarding the Vietnam War. So I'm excited to check that out. What do you know about the French Connection? I know it's a William Friedkin movie, but that's all I know, really. Um, So, and I know it's like one of those movies that's like must watch, best film ever. We were debating about a a bunch of different ones, but I'm glad that we both settled on 70s best picture winners. Um, French Connection in the early half of the 70s and Deer Hunter in the latter half of the 70s. Um, And that was a really fun period of time in movie history. So other than those legendary movies, what's on your watch list? There's a Safdie Brothers collection coming to Criterion, um, so I'm excited to watch that. An international movie that people have really loved and is probably not going to win the Oscar, but people enjoy it, is um, Society of the Snow. My sister watched it, so it was really good, so I would love to, to watch that. And then um, an oldie that I hadn't seen before that's currently on Netflix is The Parallax View. Seems right up my alley. It's like a noir thriller journalism. Crime, 70s, got all my good trigger words in there. So A moppy-headed brunette? I can't wait. Soon to be possibly my favorite movie. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for you to watch The Parallax View in close succession with The French Connection. Okay. Okay. Try for to watch them like, close together. Close-ish. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right, Zach. What are you watching? Um, so I want to watch, speaking of 70s uh, movies, I want to watch Dirty Harry. Never seen it. Um, Clint Eastwood classic. I've been reading... Uh, Quentin Tarantino's book that he published, I think, last year, Cinema Speculation. Um, basically, just Quentin Tarantino raving about the movies he watched as a kid. It's a fun way to dive into movie history. Movie history in its own different way. <laughs> uh, I want to watch the new Mean Girls movie. Um, yeah. My TikTok is just full of Renee rap. And then lastly, I want to watch Martha Marcy May Marlene. Love that movie. Which is starring Elizabeth Olsen and directed by Sean Durkin, mm-hmm. uh, who directed The Iron Claw. And I've never seen a Durkin movie before The Iron Claw, but now that I have seen and loved a, one of his films, I would like to watch another one. Yeah, I really like that film. I just saw it for first time maybe two years ago, but it really like struck me. 
I was gonna watch that movie and Wind River back to back just to get the whole Elizabeth Olsen. Oh wow, you know, yeah. <laughs> double feature thing going, but I am assuming that uh, that's gonna be a tough watch. It's not easy, but we've watched tougher. Okay. Yeah, I'll cool. say that. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can always find a new episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of the month. We do have like a nice little slate of bonus episodes for you coming soon. We are so excited. Um, we're looking to expand, especially now that Zach has seen some screeners. We're going to be talking about some modern movies, too. So that's very yeah. fun. But you can follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod and on Twitter at BlindSpotters. Zach, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pockclub. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. Don't forget, um, if you have any questions about the Oscars, to submit for our mailbag. Because we want to hear from you and we want to talk about the Oscars because it's something we love. Amanda, where can people find you? You can find me across all social media at Amanda Luberto to send me all compliments and also any of your Oscars thoughts. Send us your questions, your thoughts, your aspirations, what you want out of the show, any of that kind of stuff to either the DMs of Blind Spotters and Blind Spotters Pod or to Zach and I specifically on. Um, Text us. Yeah. DM us. <laughs> send me a letter in the mail i will get it before we record so it'll be i might not i'm really bad at checking my mail i'm good at checking my mail that's good (laughs) i also get a lot of mail so (laughs) so mail amanda yeah send me a letter (laughs) all right bye (laughs) bye i should have been a farmer